take the goat out to pasture all day and come back home and gnaw on those bones and... Does he want to start another war? Cosijoesa needs to think his answer carefully. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you every time that you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. We have a kind of a tradition on the show every year around the time of the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. We like to bring you an hour's worth of stories from some of the tellers that will be featured at the festival. The Timpanogos Storytelling Festival takes place in Lehigh, Utah, and it's one of the largest storytelling events in the country. In fact, the folks behind the Timpanoga Storytelling Festival, the Ashton Family Foundation, gave the Appleseed its start some years ago. So we've got a great affection for the festival and the folks who are behind it. And we want to bring you today stories from some of the people who are new to the festival. Uh, the festival has favorites, of course, people who come back year after year, and also people who come to the festival for the first time, and they introduce a lot of audience members to great storytelling in that way. We're going to bring you stories from Pippa White today, Adam Booth, Carolina Quiroga-Stultz, and Susan O'Halloran. You're going to enjoy each and every one of those tellers. A couple of them have been to the festival before, Pippa and Adam, but Carolina Quiroga-Stultz will be new and Susan O'Halloran, though they're not new to storytelling, of course. They've stood in front of audience after audience after audience, and we've even featured them on the show. We're going to begin with a story from Pippa White. Pippa tells these beautiful historical stories, her touching and real historical tales she's performed all across the United States. Today we're going to get to hear the story of a soldier in World War I, a soldier stuck with his division for days behind enemy lines. And in this thrilling telling from the point of view of that soldier, discover with us how the most ordinary, be they soldiers or birds, can find their way home. It's a story called Homing Pigeons. Pippa White on the apple seed. One of my favorite stories is a story from World War I. That's what I have for you tonight. It's a family-friendly war story. Um, World War I, is, it's, it's significant because right now we are celebrating the anniversary of World War I. It began in August of 1914, so that means by September of 1915, exactly 100 years ago now, it was still a new war, but it was already a pretty ugly one, and it would go on for three more long years. But historians say that everything that has happened on our planet since World War I is because of World War I. They say everything. So uh, it's a forgotten war, but it shouldn't be. So my story is from World War I, and before I begin, just a few uh, things to remind you and some of the young people about, about armed services and armies. The infantry are those men, those soldiers with guns marching on the ground. The artillery are those soldiers who man the big guns, the cannons, and there were a lot of those in World War I. Armor refers to tanks, and tank warfare began in World War I. And then there's air service, and even though airplanes were new back then, there was some bombing and there was some fighter plane activity, but not anything like World War II. Last but not least, however, there is something called the Signal Corps. And the Signal Corps <laughs> deals with messaging, right? 
And you can imagine how important messaging is during wartime. It just doesn't take much imagination when you have thousands and thousands of troops and such calamitous things happening. Messaging is really important. So this story is about the Signal Corps and messaging, and I've said enough, I'm going to let a soldier take over. Well, hello there, my name is Ray, and I was a soldier in World War I. I was part of the 77th Infantry Division, and we got called the Liberty Division because we were all from New York, and we had on our shoulders a big blue uh, patch with a picture of the Statue of Liberty on it. So we got called the Liberty Boys. Our major was Major Charles Whittlesby. He had been a lawyer in New York before the war, and uh, he was a good man. He cared about us. He cared about his men. So we went across the Atlantic Ocean to fight that war in Europe. We hadn't been in France very long before we got stuck in a bad way. We were in a bad battle, and we, the Liberty Boys, the 77th Infantry Division, we got stuck behind enemy lines. I don't know how it happened. The other Allied troops all got out, but we were up against some hillside in a ravine, and we couldn't get out. Well, the enemy knew where we were, and they were firing on us, and we weren't prepared for this. We didn't have much in the way of bandages or first aid or food or water or even ammunition, and this was not just a few hours, my friends. This was days. They began to call us the Lost Battalion, because our men wanted to help us. They wanted to get us out, but they didn't know where we were, lost. I also think they called us the Lost Battalion because they think they thought it was kind of a lost cause. Well, if bad things couldn't get worse, they did. Our men were trying to calculate where we were, and they calculated wrong. That happens in war. People make mistakes. They began shooting at us. They thought they were shooting at the Germans. They were shooting at us. So now we had the enemy shooting at us, and we had our own men shooting at us. What were we to do? We had to get a message to them to tell them they'd made a big mistake and to stop this. But how? What were we to do? Well, what were they to do? They couldn't whip out their cell phones and send a text. What were they to do? Actually, they did have something called field phones back then. They were big and they were staticky and you could only send a message one way. And I don't even know if the 77th had field phones. One thing the Signal Corps had though was uh, messaging by flags. They, different positions of flags, you could send a message by code, but you can't do that when you're surrounded by gunfire. So what were they to do? I don't know if you guys up at the back can see, but this is a stuffed toy pigeon. Pigeons uh, don't get a lot of respect. A lot of people think they're kind of uh, dirty birds, dumb birds, and in cities, when there are crowds of them, they can definitely get underfoot. But um, you've heard the term homing pigeon? Seems that pigeons have this uncanny ability to find their way home, wherever home may be. Five miles away, 105 miles away, a pigeon will get home. And pigeons 
have always been very important in war. Oh, by the way, they're not so dumb. They're one of the few animals that can recognize themselves in a mirror. Even most dogs and cats can't figure that one out. And they have been trained to recognize every letter of our alphabet. So they're not that dumb. Well, pigeons, of course we had pigeons. Everybody in World War I had pigeons. But that means that, you know, if the Germans sent a pigeon up, we knew they were sending a message. We'd try to shoot it down. If we sent a pigeon up, they'd try to shoot our pigeons down. It's not nice, but it was war, and that's how it was. So, yeah, 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 we had our pigeons, and we'd sent them all up, and they'd all been shot down. We had one pigeon left. Cher ami, how do you do? Listen, let me talk to you. I'll not hurt you, don't you see? Come a little close to me. Little scrawny blue and white, messenger for men who fight, tell me about the deep red scar here where no feathers are. Cher ami, that's French. It's French for dear friend. And Cher ami was our last pigeon. So Major Whittlesby got this little piece of paper, and on it he wrote, this is what it said, we are on the road parallel to 476.2. Our own men are dropping a barrage on us. For heaven's sakes, tell them to stop it. He rolled that up and put it in a little canister, smaller than my pinky, and tied it on to Cherami's leg. That's how we did it. And then... We let Jeremy go. That bird flies up to, a, to the top of a tree, you know, and sits there a minute or two, sort of like to get its bearings, and then it takes off. Right away, shot twice in the leg and in the chest. That little bird tumbles to the ground, our last hope. And now, wait a minute, it gets up. That little wounded bird gets up and flew. Cher Ami, how do you do? Listen, let me talk to you. I'll not hurt you, don't you see? Come a little close to me. Tell me about your lost left leg. Tell me, Cher Ami, I beg. Boys and girls are at a loss as to how you won that silver cross. Twenty five miles. That little wounded bird flew 25 miles in 25 minutes. They say it arrived at Signal Corps, Signal Corps headquarters, fell into the coop, a mass of feathers and blood. The left leg was hanging by two little tendons and attached to the left leg was the message. The shelling stopped. Now they knew where we were. We got rescued. And all because of a poor little wounded makes me tear up. Jeremy lived. Turned out that Jeremy was a she. They had thought he was a he, but she was a she. She got a wooden leg 
Uh, she was operated on. She did lose sight in one eye. She lived about 18 months, and she would have lived longer had she not uh, suffered all that trauma. She did, however, receive the French uh, Silver Cross, the Croix de Guerre, and in the 1920s and the 1930s, school children all over this country and all over Europe all knew the name Cher Ami. Pigeons have saved thousands of lives, especially in the 20th century. They used pigeons all the way up to and including Vietnam. In World War II, there was a pigeon called Winky who went down in the North Sea when a fighter plane crashed into the North Sea. The men got into the raft. They released Winky, but not with a message because you don't take a paper and pencil into a raft. Winky flew 120 miles in two hours. 120 miles in two hours. They go, almost go as fast as we go on the, inter, in, in, on the interstate. Uh, got to Signal Corps headquarters, and they were able to calculate. They knew the plane had gone down generally, but not specifically. And because of how long it took Winky to get to Signal Corps headquarters, the men were rescued. So Winky got a dinner in Winky's honor and retirement, but, but not a not a silver cross. However, in World War I, there were many, many animals that got awards, dogs, a couple of donkeys, but no animal got more awards uh, than pigeons. So they have saved thousands and thousands of lives. So next time you see a pigeon, please join me and say thank you. Homing Pigeons, a story told for you by Pippa White, one of the great storytellers who will be featured at this year's Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. In just a moment, we're going to bring you a little history of the festival shared with you by Donald Davis, the great storyteller from North Carolina and a regular at the festival all the way back to the beginning. I'm Sam Payne. You won't want to miss a word. Stick around. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such pleasure to be preparing for the annual Timpanogos Storytelling Festival, largest storytelling festival in the West, bringing great stories to the stage and to the classroom and to the concert hall and the festival tent for more than 30 years. And almost as long as there's been a Timpanogos Storytelling Festival, there has been Donald Davis associated with the festival. And uh, Donald Davis joins me now from his home in North Carolina. Donald, it's going to be wonderful to see you at the festival. Uh, share some of the memories that you've got of this terrific event? Well, I was telling stories at the National Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and I just finished telling the story about my Uncle Frank's foxhound. And uh, three ladies came up to meet me, but one was the spokesman. She introduced herself as Karen Ashton, and she told me they were organizing a storytelling festival in Utah and wanted to know if I could come the next year. Well, I had my calendar with me and I looked and I was already booked for that next year. She said, well, can you come the year after that? And so we went ahead and wrote it all down on the calendar and I was booked to come to the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival, not knowing that the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival didn't exist yet. <laughs> Nobody in Utah knew anything about it. Uh, Karen had gone to the National Festival, decided on her own they were going to do this and was had already hired the 
tellers for the first two years before she came back and began to put a committee together and explain to them, guess what? We're going to have a storyteller festival. But if you know Karen, you know that's the way that's the way things that's get right. done. So I was at the second festival, which was in the uh, down at the Ashton's house yeah. uh, at the park. Uh, one tent actually in their yard where an extension of their kitchen is now. There was a round tent there. Yeah. And then one across in the park and one in what was at that time a cow pasture beyond where the end of Palisade stops yeah. beyond there. And um, the thing that was remarkable from the very beginning when the audience was just starting to grow was the quality of programming. Hmm. You know, a lot of festivals think we're just going to start off little and we're just going to have some tellers who volunteer and, and it never gets off the ground. Yeah. But from the yeah. very beginning, Timpanogos always invited the very best tellers they could find, the very strongest program that could be put together. And, and there was no weak spot. Yeah. And of course, it wasn't long until uh, one day I was there doing school visits and, uh, and Karen said, let's go right up to this place where we're considering moving the festival because we've outgrown this space and we rode up to this old power plant, the, the Olmstead. And you know, when we started down that road, it was like, where in the world are we going? And then we got down with these big trees and where the, where the river came down through there. And it was a gorgeous site, an invisible, invisible site. And it worked beautifully well, but guess what happened? The festival kept growing. Yeah. It kept growing, it kept growing. And then the uh, the park was built on up the on up the canyon there a little bit, and um, and now we're at this one at the wonderful location that I don't think can be outgrown, you know, uh, Ashton Gardens at Thanksgiving Point, which yeah. is such a mark because the festivals come it becoming more and more than just a regional festival. Right, more and more people are traveling from afar, which means. They need places to stay. Guess what's right there at Thanksgiving Point? They yeah, need places yeah. to eat. It's right there. Uh, it's easy to get there. It's easy to fly to Salt Lake City and end up there. Yeah, and yeah. then the place itself is so beautiful. So, you know, I guess I'm talking about the festival in terms of its locations through sure. the year. Yeah. But that yeah. movement of locations for me really traces the history as it, as it goes along. And it's, it's such a favorite place for me uh, to be every year. You know, the, the, you're right. People come from all over to, to the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival, and they find uh, in tents where you are telling stories <laughs> a, a, a piece of home, you know. Uh, we, we've, we've, we've asked a lot of storytellers how they know if a performance of theirs has been successful. And we get one answer over and over and over again. And that answer is, we know that our performance has been successful if we watch the people leaving the tent turned toward each other, telling stories exactly. that have been inspired by our stories. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you always hope that people are gonna like your stories. Yeah. But what you hope more than that is that as they leave, they will have stories they wouldn't have thought of if they hadn't come that day. Yeah. Yep. And that's, it's, that's what we're modeling. 
Well, if you can if you can visit timpfest.org, that's T-I-M-P-F-E-S-T dot org, you'll find out all you need to know about the festival, how to connect with it, and how to hear wonderful storytellers like Donald Davis and his fellows. They're there every year, and uh, uh, what a pleasure to have you with us, Donald Davis. Thank you, Sam. Visit Donald himself at ddavisstoryteller.com. There's lots to see and do there. You can get uh, acquainted his with his more than 40 original storytelling recordings and more than 18 books and more there at ddavisstoryteller.com. And uh, there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you this hour on The Appleseed. If you're just joining us a moment ago, we heard a conversation with Donald Davis, the wonderful storyteller from North Carolina, about a little bit of the history behind the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. We have kind of a tradition here on the show. Around the time that festival takes the stage each year, we feature some of the tellers who will be telling at that festival on our show. Uh, the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival has been a longtime friend of the Appleseed. In fact, the folks behind the festival, the Ashton Family Foundation, brought the Appleseed to the air back in 2013. And so we've always had an affection not only for the festival, but for the folks behind the festival. And coming up, we've got a story from Adam Booth, who blends mountain folklore with elements that a contemporary audience will be able to love and connect with. And in today's story, we're going to hear a tale of goats and magic and a girl with, shall we say, an unremarkable number of eyes, and her two sisters who have, shall we say, interesting numbers of eyes. Here's Adam Booth with a delightful tale called Eyes. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. There was a woman who lived with her three daughters in a house. There was something strange about these daughters. The oldest daughter she had been born with only one eye. She wasn't missing an eye. She only had one eye right in the center of her forehead. The middle daughter, she had two eyes, where most people have two eyes. And the youngest daughter, she had been born with three eyes. Two eyes, one here and one there, and then a third one in her forehead. Now, mother was not the most creative of people, and so she named her oldest daughter one eye, her middle daughter two eyes, and the youngest daughter you guessed it, three eyes. Now mother and two of her daughters were mean to one of the other daughters. Two eyes. Mother and one eye and three eyes were so mean to two eyes because she looked normal. There was nothing special about her, at least in her appearance. They would make her do all kinds of chores throughout the day, including taking the goat out to pasture for long hours at a time. They would stay at home and have nice fine meals and they would take the bones and throw them in a pail along with crusts of bread and set that outside the door for Two Eyes to eat when she came home. Two Eyes, there's your bucket. Eat your meal. <laughs> Two Eyes didn't like that very much, but that was the only thing she knew. She would take the goat out to pasture all day and come back home and gnaw on those bones and eat that hard crusty bread. She got sadder and sadder and thinner and thinner as the days passed. 
One day when she took the goat out to the pasture, she was so sad that she leaned right up against the goat's side and began crying and crying. <laughs> They're so mean to me. Why don't they like me? I'm so hungry. If only there was something that would come and change this. <laughs> Anything. And with that, she heard a sound. And when she looked, on the other side of the goat, there was a strange, small woman standing right there in the grass. Two eyes, she said. I heard your crying. I've come to help. Well, who are you? Never mind that, Two Eyes. If you're hungry, the answer is right there. She pointed at the goat, and Two Eyes said, Oh, no, I would never eat that goat. It's my only friend. Hush, Two Eyes, she said. Don't eat the goat. Sing it a song. Here, let me teach the song to you. Little goat, little goat, bleat, bleat, bleat. Give me something good to eat, the strange woman sang. And with that, the goat's ears perked right up. You sing it, Two Eyes. And Two Eyes began to sing, Little goat, little goat, bleat, bleat, bleat. And with that, the goat began trotting around in a circle. Give me something good to eat. Keep going. Little goat, little goat, bleat, bleat, bleat. Give me something good to eat. And the more she sang, the faster that goat ran around in a circle. And when she stopped singing, the goat slowed down. And when the cloud of dust settled, there in the center of the area where the goat had been running was a tablecloth. And on that tablecloth was a feast. Roasted meats, fine baked breads, there were fancy fruits and nuts and cheeses. Ah, oh, Two Eyes couldn't believe her. Two Eyes, that's for you, said the woman. And Two Eyes sat down and began eating and eating. And when she was done, she looked at the woman and said, what do I do now? The woman said, just say, away, tablecloth, away. Two Eyes turned to the goat and said, away, tablecloth, away. And with that, the goat ran around backwards. And when the dust settled again, the tablecloth was gone. Two eyes turned to thank the woman. How can I thank you? But the woman was gone. <laughs> she led that goat back home toward the end of the day. Two eyes, there's your bucket. Eat your bread and gnaw on the bones, <laughs> said her sisters. But two eyes said, mm, I'm really not that hungry today, with a smile. The next day she led the goat out to pasture and tried the song again. Little goat, little goat, bleat, bleat, bleat. Give me something good to eat. And away the goat began to run. And when the dust settled, there was the tablecloth with even finer foods. And she ate to her heart's content. Away, tablecloth, away. Whoosh, it disappeared. She led the goat back. Two eyes, eat from your bucket. <laughs> we left you extra bones today. <laughs> no, thank you. And the next day and the next day, this continued. Until at the end of the week, when two eyes hadn't eaten from the bucket at all, one eye and three eyes turned to mother and said, Mother, something is strange. Two eyes hasn't had anything from her bucket all week. She seems to be getting food from somewhere else. Where does she get it from? And mother said, You're right. Tomorrow, one eye, you'll follow two eyes out into the field and see where she gets the food from and come back and tell me. Well, the next day, one eye followed two eyes and the goat out into the field. And two eyes noticed. She turned around and said, What are you doing, one eye? And one eye blinked her big one eye and said, Oh, nothing, just looking around. Well, two eyes knew she was up to something, so she began to sing a lullaby. One eye, one eye, close your eye and sleep. 
One eye, one eye, close your eye and sleep. And one eye's one eye couldn't resist. It just closed and she fell fast asleep. Little goat, little goat, bleed, bleed, bleed. And two eyes ate that big meal. Away, tablecloth, away. And then she went to wake up her sister. One eye, wake up, you've fallen asleep. Oh, no. When they got back home, mother said, One eye, come close. Where does she get the food from? And one eye said, I don't know, I fell asleep. Oh, one eye, you're no good for anything. Three eyes, come close. Tomorrow you'll follow your sister out and see where she gets the food. And that's what happened the next day. And two eyes noticed three eyes was following her. Three eyes, what are you doing out here? Oh, nothing, she said as she blinked all three of her eyes and said, just looking, looking, looking around. So she began to sing. Three eyes, three eyes, close your eyes and sleep. And the first eye fell asleep. Three eyes, three eyes, close your eyes and sleep. The second eye closed asleep. Three eyes, three eyes, close your eye. The third eye began to fall asleep, but even though the eyelid got close, it didn't close all the way. Little goat, little goat, bleep, bleep, bleep. Two eyes ate that big meal. Away, tablecloth, away. Whoosh. Oh, three eyes, I think you've fallen asleep. Wake up. And three eyes opened her three eyes and said, Oh, yes, it seems that I fell asleep. <laughs> when she got home, mother said, Three eyes, come close. Where does she get the food? And three eyes said, Mother, it's from the goat. She sings it a song. It runs around and provides a feast for her on a tablecloth. Finer food than even we eat. And mother said, Is that so? Then bring the goat to me. Two eyes noticed that something was happening. One eye and three eyes came out to get the goat. What are you doing with my goat? They said, Mother's going to kill it. No, she said, no. She ran inside and watched as Mother was whetting her knife. What are you going to do? She said, I'm going to slaughter the goat. And two eyes couldn't believe it. She ran up to her room crying, no, not the goat. It's my only friend. She cried into the pillow of her bed. Oh, no, not the goat, not the goat. And with that, she looked up from the bed and there was that same strange woman two eyes she said i heard you're crying go back downstairs ask your mother and sisters for the goat's heart they won't want it take it out to the front yard and bury it there then come inside and go to sleep and tomorrow all your problems will be solved really she said looking out the window toward the front yard, out there. But when she turned, the woman was gone. She made her way downstairs and said, uh, Mother, sisters, could I have some of that goat? No, we're not going to give you any of this goat. She said, not even the heart. You don't want that part, do you? They said, no, not the heart. And they threw it at her. Take it. She took the heart out to the front yard. She dug a small hole and put the heart there, covered it up, went back inside, and fell asleep in her bed. The next day, she awoke with a start. Her mother and sisters were screaming. She ran down the stairs. They had opened the front door. Look, in the front yard. And she did. And there, where she had buried the goat's heart, a tree had grown up overnight. It was no normal tree. It had silver leaves and heavy apples made of solid gold hanging from its branches. Mother said, One-Eye, get me one of those golden apples. And One-Eye said, Yes, Mother. She ran out to the tree. She tried to climb up into the branches. But every time she tried, the tree would fling her off of those branches onto the ground. Uh. Finally, she came back in defeat. Mother, I can't do it. Oh, One-Eye, you're no good for anything. Three eyes, go get Mother one of those golden apples. Yes, Mother. And she ran out to the tree. 
and tried climbing up the trunk, but the tree trunk twisted and threw her down to the ground. She came back in defeat also. Two Eyes said, I believe I could get one of those apples. Oh, Two Eyes, you can't do it. But she didn't listen. She just stepped right past her family. And as she walked out toward the tree, some of its lower branches moved down toward the ground and made a basket that she stepped right into. It lifted her up into the tree, and the limbs shook and apples fell all around her. She had to grab onto her apron and pull it up so that she could catch some of those apples as it lowered her back down to the ground. Two Eyes, how did you do that? Two Eyes started to tell the story, but Mother said, Hush! Quick! Hide! Because she saw there on the road that went past their house was coming a prince riding on his horse. Well, the prince slowed his horse as he saw that magical tree there in the yard. He called down to Mother, You, woman, is this your apple tree? Why, yes, she said, it is. He said, Why, if I could have but one of those golden apples, I would make a wish come true for the woman who gave it to me. And she said, Oh, I happen to have a daughter right here. And she pulled forth one eye. Isn't she lovely? And one eye blinked her one eye real big, and the prince kind of shuddered. But one eye came forward to the tree. I'll get you an apple. She tried to climb up into the tree branches, but the tree just threw her down. I don't believe that is your tree, said the prince. Do you have another daughter? Mother said, why, yes, I have this daughter here, and she's even lovelier, isn't she? And the prince watched as three eyes blinked all three of her eyes, and he shuddered three times. Three eyes came up to the tree and tried to climb up the trunk to get one of those apples to get a wish, but the tree trunk twisted and threw her to the ground. I don't believe that is your tree either. Do you have any other daughters? And mother said, no. And just as the prince was turning to leave, something hit his foot. He looked down, and there next to his boot was a golden apple, and then another, and he saw where they were rolling from, a large basin. Who's under that basin, rolling those apples at me? Mother said, no one, but the prince came forward, and he lifted up that basin, and up stood two eyes. Do you believe you could get one of those golden apples for me? Yes, she said, I can. And he watched as she walked to the tree, and the tree lowered some of its branches, making another basket, lifted her up, it shook its limbs, and down came the golden apples. It lowered her back down, and she gave one of those apples to the prince. And he said, Ah, this must be your tree. And since you gave me one of these golden apples, I would make any of your wishes come true. Why, you could even come back to my castle and become my princess. (laughs) Would you have that? And two eyes looked at him and said, No. No? No. That's not what I want. I don't even know you. All I want is for you to take me away from these people. They're my family, but they are not good to me. They starve me. They make me do all the work, and I would give anything to have a better life than this. That is my wish. And the prince said, so it shall be. He lifted her up onto the horse, and the prince and two eyes rode away. When they got to the castle, he made for her an apartment of rooms. And when she woke up the next morning and looked out the window, that tree of silver leaves and golden apples had moved to the yard there at the castle. Well, as time passed, two eyes got to know the prince. And after a while, she said, well, does that offer still stand to become your princess? (laughs) And he said, it does. And so she became his princess. And before long, he became the king and she became the queen.
And did I mention what his name was? It was Mary Wise. And from that day forward, King Mary Wise and Queen Two Eyes ruled the entire land, not with power and might, but with curiosity, compassion, and care. Adam Booth with a story called Eyes. A pleasure to bring that tale to you. And our next story comes from the Colombian storyteller Carolina Quiroga Stultz, well known for her bilingual tellings of Latin American tales. And in this story, the new king of the Zapotec Empire finds himself faced with the struggle of establishing himself and protecting his people from their enemies, the Aztecs. When love enters the equation, how will the new king react? Find out in this ancient tale from Carolina Quiroga Stultz. It's the last Zapotec king here on the Appleseed. The Last King It is the year of 1487 of the Christian era. Cosijoesa is a young warrior of 30 years old and had been recently appointed the new Zapotec king. Today, he is in his palace in the city of Juchitan, in the gardens of the trees of white flowers. Today, Cosijoesa is hosting a diplomatic ceremony. He is welcoming emissaries from all the other kingdoms that have come to pay their respects and, of course, to congratulate him. The next one to talk is the Aztec emissary. Great Cosijoesa, magnificent light that makes the ether tremble. Ahuizotl, our mighty Aztec king, wishes you uh, prosperity and uh, <laughs> many descendants. And as a symbol of his friendship, Ahuizotl sends you many presents. <laughs> our mighty king only asks for you to deliver to him some of your trees of white flowers that grow only here in Huchitan. Cosijoesa reflects, the truth is that the Zapotecs and the Aztecs have never been friends. Then why? Why is Ahuizotl, the Aztec king, asking for those trees. Why now? Was this a bait? Does he want to start another war? Cosijoesa needs to think his answer carefully. The wrong words can disturb the tense calm. As Cosijoesa ponders the options, he is interrupted by the impatient emissary. Cosijoesa! You know that Ahuizotl will have those trees one way or the other. Well, those poor manners led to an easy answer. Then no, he won't have my trees. A blood shed was unleashed, and it lasted for seven years. 
It was exactly what the Aztec king had been looking for. By 1494, the Aztecs had already destroyed all the major Zapotec cities, such as Mitla and Sachila. The Aztec forces were surrounding the outskirts of Juchitán, ready to destroy the Zapotec capital. All the Aztec soldiers were in high spirit, but they were also tired. What they didn't know is that the Zapotec soldiers inside the fortress of Juchitán had not fought yet. They were all well rested, and they had a secret weapon. That night, 30,000 Zapotec soldiers came out of the fortress of Juchitán, surrounded the Aztecs, and began to shoot their poisonous arrows. As a result, most of the Aztec soldiers were deadly wounded. Oh, Ahuizotl was furious. He had been so close, but now he had to flee and go back to Tenochtitlan, like the lion goes back to his cave to lick his wounds and plot his revenge. And here is when Montezuma II comes to play a major role. At the time, Montezuma is only Ahuizotl's nephew and one of his advisors. And Montezuma suggests that there could be an easier way to deal with that inconvenient neighbor. A female way. Coyolicansin, one of Ahuizotl's favorite daughters also known as Cotton Flake, because her skin was pale, just like the moon. She was entrusted with the mission of seducing Cosijoesa, the Zapotec king, who had not yet found the perfect bride. The Aztecs have already gathered information on Cosijoesa's whereabouts. They knew when and where he would go to bathe. Then, a surprise love encounter was plotted. Oh, and when Cosijoesa saw Coyolican sin, he was taken by her beauty, by her seductive moves, and by her mysterious smile. To impress her, Cosijoesa began to talk about his riches, palaces, gardens, absolutely all he had. But she was unmoved because she was playing the femme fatale. At last, she just said, Oh, I have wandered throughout these lands in search of my happiness but I haven't found it yet. Oh, he wanted to be her happiness. So he invited her to stay at his palace in Huchitan for a week. At the end, she just said, Great, Cosijoesa. I certainly appreciate all your kindness, but my heart begs me to go back 
to my Aztec family, to my father, Ahuizatl. What? Cosijoesa couldn't believe it. How could this be? His happiness was the daughter of his arch enemy, but now he was so in love with her that he was willing to do anything for her. So she went back to her Aztec family, followed by a long escort of Zapotec emissaries carrying gifts and a marriage proposal. Ahuizotl, the Aztec king, was delighted. His plan had worked. All those riches had come so easily. And the marriage proposal, oh, a piece of cake. Now, he had to play the role of the sad father. So, Ahuizotl said, Oh, this proposal breaks my heart. My cotton flake, my beautiful Coyolicansen, my favorite daughter. Oh, how can I live without her? I'll figure it out. But I can see your king as wise, seeking an alliance with the greatest of all nations. This union will certainly bring power and peace at last. Well, the two lovebirds got married and the celebration lasted four days. All the common people, Zapotecs and Aztecs, believed that finally peace had been accomplished. But what only a few knew was that Coyolican was still on a mission. She had been instructed to spy on the Zapotecs, often sending information back to her father about the Zapotecs' military strategies and on their secret weapon. Ahuizotl's only hope was that one day he could finally subdue the Zapotecs. However, Ahuizotl did not live to see his ambitions fulfilled. He died in 1509. But Montezuma, his nephew and heir, pursued the old goals. When Montezuma II took possession of the Aztec throne, he sent an ultimatum to Cosijoesa. The beautiful Coyolicansin could either stay with her adopted Zapotec family and most likely die, or she could go back to her Aztec blood and join them against their long-lasting enemies. Yet, Coyolicansin had made her choice long time ago. Soon after their first son was born, she confessed everything to Cosijoesa, who forgave her because, truly, she meant the world to him. Still, she continued spying, but this time for the Zapotecs. She kept feeding the Aztecs with the misleading information that her husband gave her. Yes, she chose to stay with her Zapotec family. Now it was up to Cosijoesa to decide 
Should he spare his people from another bloodshed, or should they fight? He chose life. He signed a treaty that made the Zapotecs a dependent kingdom of the Aztecs. It doesn't look like a win, right? But it was in the long run. Because what Cosijoesa knew and what Montezuma II failed to interpret in the omens they all witnessed for years is that right around the corner there was a third party coming to play a destructive and transformative role in the lives of all the native people of the Americas. It was the conquistadores, the Europeans. The Aztecs were almost wiped out. Perhaps because during their reign, they had only cultivated enemies. Yet, the Zapotecs survived. Until this day, the Zapotecs are still alive in the old Juchitan, today Oaxaca, México. Y colorín colorado, este cuento se ha acabado. The end. Carolina Quiroga Stultz with an ancient tale about the last Zapotec king. A pleasure to bring that story to you today. Carolina Quiroga Stultz is also the person behind the podcast Tres Cuentos. Tres Cuentos is a bilingual podcast dedicated to the literary, historical, and traditional narratives of Latin America, and it's one you want to check out. Up next, we've got a story from Susan O'Halloran. Susan O'Halloran is known for her focus on stories of family relationships and how our past and present can affect our future. She pays a lot of attention to race relations in her stories. And in this story from her grandmother's life, a young woman leaves Ireland and makes a difficult journey across the Atlantic to the United States. It's a story called Grandmother's Story, and we're going to bring it to you right after we remind you that you can find us online at byuradio.org slash appleseed. There are nearly 2,000 episodes of the show waiting for you there, each one filled with stories for you and your family. We always hope that the stories that we bring you on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. And when you hear a story like this story you're about to hear, Grandmother's Story by Susan O'Halloran, it's sure to bring some of those things to mind, some of the people that have gone before you, some of the adventures that have made you and your family what they are. Here's Susan O'Halloran with Grandmother's Story on the Appleseed. My grandmother never wanted to come to America. That's the story I heard over and over again. Her older sister, Mary, was the one who should have gone. But in that early morning of departure, 1887, Mary woke up sick, or so she said. She took to her bed crying, moaning. She couldn't possibly go. Now, my grandmother was just 13 years old, hard enough to go to bed and know that you would never see your older sister again. You've got to understand, there were no airplanes back then. People didn't fly back and forth. Hard enough to go to bed that way. But instead, she was woken up and told, 
No, you're the one to leave. You're the one who's never going to see her family again. Now back then, you see, you couldn't waste a ticket. It had taken the family years to save up enough money for one ticket. So my grandmother had to wake up quick, hurry around, pack a few things in the carpet bag suitcase her mother had made for Mary, and say goodbye to her three sisters and her younger brother Patrick and her mom and her dad because somebody had to go get work in America, send money back home because the family was starving. My grandmother set out for Dublin, a two-week journey by foot with another aunt who was supposed to have watched Mary. And as they went down the road, there would have been hundreds of people joining them because millions left Ireland in the 1800s. And all the time they walked, these, these horse-drawn caravans, these carts piled high with fresh fruits and vegetables would have passed them by because the British, who were running Ireland at the time, were taking all the food for themselves. Now, you may have heard of the Great Famine in Ireland, but I found out when I went to visit Ireland, a lot of people call it the Great Starvation because there was food. The Irish just weren't allowed to grow the food, I mean, to eat the food they were growing. The food they grew had to go to the British. They would ship it over to England. So all the time my grandma's walking, of course there were no fast food restaurants back then, nor did anybody have any money if there were any restaurants. So they started eating weeds and cabbage leaves and grass to try to stay alive. By the time they got to the docks in Dublin, some British writers wrote, that their faces were stained green, their mouths were stained green. And this showed just how subhuman, animal-like the Irish really were. Well, my grandma, she sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. She sailed in what they called coffin ships, like caskets, because so many people died on those voyages. Hundreds of people were packed in the bottom of the boat, and there were so many diseases back then, diphtheria and typhus, things like that, cholera. See, the people could only be allowed up aboard for maybe an hour or so because they couldn't let people be getting in the crew's way. So they had to be down below, and you can imagine the stench, because there were no toilets back then. They used tin cans or buckets for chamber pots, and there was no electricity, and you certainly wouldn't want to light a candle. That would be too dangerous. So you just sat in the dark and all this stench, and then people would sleep on these little narrow bunks, three, four people to a bunk, sometimes sleeping with somebody you didn't know, nobody who could shower, and there was lice and all that. And I try to imagine my grandma, just 13 years old, with this, this aunt. We don't know too many details, but we found out this aunt got sick, who was supposed to be taking care of my grandma, so she, my grandma was taking care of her. And I just think of her sitting in the dark like 23 hours a day, sick people all around us, like six, seven, eight weeks like this. Well, she got to America, thank goodness, and she worked day and night. And all the time she would send money back home. Now, when she left, her parents said, now don't worry, we'll save up some money. We'll send one of the other sisters to help you out. But no sister ever, ever came. My grandma was just alone doing all of that work. And I think about what people have gone through to get to this country, or what they're still going through to get to this country or people who were captured and brought to this country, or people who already lived here, but their lands and their way of life were taken. And I think about what a huge debt of gratitude we owe them. I know that my life could not be the way it was if it wasn't for my grandmother's sacrifices. So sometimes I find myself whispering a little prayer. Thank you, Grandma. Thank you. Susan O'Halloran on the Appleseed. 
with a story called Grandmother's Story. What a pleasure to bring Susan O'Halloran to you today, along with Carolina Quiroga-Stultz with her story, The Last Zapotec King, and from Adam Booth, that story called Simply Eyes. And, of course, at the top of the hour, you heard from Pippa White in a story called Homing Pigeons, a World War I tale. And it was our delight to talk with Donald Davis, the great storyteller from North Carolina, with just a little bit of information about the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. Today's episode has featured tellers who will be on stage at this year's Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. And it's kind of a tradition for us around festival time to bring some of those tellers to you on the show. We have a long friendship with the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival and the folks behind it. Some of those folks helped us bring you the apple seed for the first time back in 2013. You can visit us online at byuradio.org slash appleseed for all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers in just about 2,000 episodes of the show. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.